This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the unexpected things that shape us and how we can shape the future. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and in each episode, I take something that seems concerning or confusing today and figure out where it came from, what important things we're missing, and how to be more optimistic about tomorrow. Have you ever become fascinated with something that nobody you know seems to care about? Well, for me, that object of fascination had become a chemical in our brains called dopamine. And wait, 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 before you give up on this episode, because you couldn't possibly care about a brain chemical called dopamine, I want you to know two things. Number one, once I tell you about dopamine, you will start hearing it everywhere because it comes up a surprising amount. People use it as the scientific explanation for why social media is bad for us. And number two, once I tell you about dopamine, it will change your brain. I am serious, so serious that I commissioned a little jingle about it. What I am about to tell you will change your brain. Want to know why? All right, let's back up for a second. So like I said, dopamine is often trotted out when someone is trying to sound smart about the dangers of social media. I am going to explain their argument through a series of clips. We'll start with Bill Maher on Real Time with Bill Maher. We all know the feeling. You post a picture on social media, and when the likes pop up, it floods your brain with gratifying dopamine. So the story goes like this. Dopamine is a chemical in your brain that is released whenever you do something pleasurable. And because every little micro action taken on social media is pleasurable, it creates a constant stream of dopamine. And why would that matter? Well, here is Sean Parker, the co-founder of Napster and first president of Facebook, a few years ago when he came out to say that Facebook is hacking, quote, a vulnerability in human psychology, end quote. That thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while. Why would they do that? Because dopamine isn't just pleasurable, people say. Dopamine is also addictive and overpowering. Here is a psychiatrist named Sue Varma on CBS This Morning. And getting addicted, you know, when you're talking about smartphones, what's happening is our brain is flooded with dopamine and then we end up becoming desensitized, needing more and more stimulation. And this is particularly scary because children have access to this awful dopamine. Here is the self-help author Simon Senek setting up the problem on Tom Bilyeu's impact theory. And you have an entire generation that has access to an addictive numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. And this is a trap from which young people just cannot escape. Here is a little more from Simon Sinek, who was born in 1973, speaking for the youth of today on a show called SRO Conversations. They look at what the, the companies that they've grown up in and the economy that they're growing up in, and they want something different. The problem is the youth of today doesn't understand the point of commitment. They're all addicted to dopamine. You know, we, they, we pretty much raised an entire generation addicted to the bing, buzz, beeper flash of their telephone, which is a dopamine addiction, which is the exact same thing you're addicted to when you're addicted to cigarettes, gambling, or smoke, or, uh, or alcohol. It's all dopamine. 
So this all sounds pretty scary and scientific, right? Our brains release a chemical called dopamine whenever we're pleased, and that chemical is addictive. It is, in fact, the same thing that drives addiction to cigarettes, gambling, and alcohol. So now anyone can open up Instagram, and every little interaction we have on Instagram produces an addictive chemical in our brains, which means that we need more and more of that chemical, which is why we keep returning to social media, and the social media creators know this, which is why they keep creating new moments inside of the app that will trigger more dopamine, and they can hook you on their products, and we're just willy-nilly giving this drug to our children, and that is the story. A very scary scientific story. Now, look, let me be clear about something. I am not a scientist. So when I heard this story repeated over and over again, I had no real way to evaluate it, but something about it was gnawing at me. Something just seemed logically off. And this is why I became a little overly fascinated with the subject, especially once I started to realize what the problem was. And it's this. If every pleasurable thing we do creates dopamine and dopamine is addictive and our natural response to dopamine is to do more of the pleasurable thing in order to get more dopamine, then why does this cycle not happen with every single thing that's pleasurable? If we are biologically programmed to go into deep and uncontrollable pleasure cycles, then wouldn't it make sense that any pleasurable thing would trigger an addiction? Why are we not worried about, I don't know, basketball addicts and walking in the park addicts and playing with puppies addicts? And I guess the counter argument to that would be, well, those other pleasurable things don't send us notifications the way that Instagram does, nor are they constantly accessible the way that Instagram is. And also, Instagram produces a constant stream of likes and photos, which is a higher volume of input and therefore a higher volume of dopamine than basketball and walks in the parks and puppies. And okay, that seems fair, though I guess the counter argument to that counter argument would be, well, first of all, isn't that not how addiction works? There isn't some threshold of heroin that you have to take in order to become addicted. It can start small and build. And also, have you ever watched a basketball game? There is a reason to cheer every few seconds. So much dopamine. And anyway, this is what I was doing. I was having a stupid, very ill-informed debate with myself because, like I said, I am not a scientist. I don't know anything about dopamine. And here I was questioning people who I suspected also did not know anything about dopamine. So really, if I wanted to get to the bottom of this, I needed to call someone who actually knows something about dopamine. There are two groups in the world that have made sub-second measures of dopamine during reward-dependent tasks in human beings. One of them's mine, and the other is a lab led by a guy called Ken Kashida at Wake Forest. And that's it. This is neuroscientist Reed Montague, a professor at Virginia Tech and director of its Center for Human Neuroscience Research. And yes, an expert on dopamine and one of the few people in the world who have actually studied and measured exactly the thing that I'm wondering about. And when I first reached out as a way of explaining why I wanted to talk to him, I had sent along one of those clips you heard a moment ago. It's the one from Simon Senek. When I had emailed your assistant, I had sent along this clip of Simon Sinek talking. Have you heard that? I heard the tail end of it, something about dopamine rushes and it numbs kids during there you go. Yeah. During their life. Yeah. So that's right. Um, I only heard like 30. I mean, it, it was like. It's not a very long quote. I mean, it comes as part of a very, very long rant that he went on about um, millennials. I, I think the best thing possibly to do is to just. Um, uh, put my headphones up to the microphone and see if you can hear it. Okay, here, here we go. And you have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Okay, so 
What, why is dopamine? How does he know that dopamine is numbing? I do not know how he knows that. Neither do I. I have no idea what he could be referring to. You mean like numbing, like numbing your senses, numbing your sensibilities, impacting your impulse control, your cognitive control, your judgment. I'm numbed to it the way I'm a heroin addict. I'm high on heroin. I'm numb to the world around me. And that pretty much set the tone for our conversation. Simon Senak literally does not understand the subject he's talking about. But look, this is not just about Simon or Bill Maher or Sean Parker or whoever misuses this word. The thing is, dopamine is very misunderstood. I don't know if you hear this stuff because you're actually engaged in intelligent research. Oh, I do, oh, I do, I do hear it. You do hear it. I like other things. I try to ignore it because I can't because my head explodes. But I promised a moment ago that I am not just telling you all of this because of dopamine. I promised to change your brain. And so let's put dopamine on pause for a moment. We will come back to it. But right now, I want to take you briefly backwards to the start of the 20th century. Cars are a brand new thing. And people are debating what kind of impact the car will have, not just on the roads, but on our brains. The New York Times runs a very alarming story in 1904, which reports this. The brain specialist predicted that motomaniacs will be represented in the insane asylums in the near future. There are a few already there. And right between those sentences are two illustrations of brains. The one on the right is titled The Normal Brain, and it looks like a normal brain. The one on the left is titled The Autoist's Brain, as in the brain of someone who drives an automobile, and it is shrunken and malformed. The implication is clear. This new technology changes your brain, and changing your brain is a terrible thing. We now know that, broadly speaking, driving a car is perfectly fine for your brain and your mental health. But what if there is a misunderstood bit of truth in that 1904 New York Times article? What if this misunderstood bit of truth drove yesterday's fear of the car and today's fear of social media and the fear of so many other things in between that are associated in some ways with changing your brain? Because I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, right? This thing changes your brain. Just Google around and you'll find all the articles. Screens change your brain. The internet changes your brain. Video games change your brain. Well, what if, in fact, new technologies actually do change our brains? And that fact by itself is not only not a problem, but it is, in fact, exactly what the brain is supposed to do. This is the real reason to care about dopamine, not because it makes a fool out of people like Simon Senek, although I admit that is kind of satisfying, but more importantly, because it is a lesson about how our brains are more powerful than we think. And this means we have less reasons to fear new things. That is what this episode is about. It is going to change your brain. I promise. I guarantee it. It is scientifically verified. And it's all coming up after the break. Hiring people is one of the most exciting and frustrating parts of work. Why? Well, because you want great talent and everything that they can bring, but it is so hard to find them. Unless you're using Indeed. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description and you can even invite them to apply right away. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply for your job 
than those who only see it in a search, according to Indeed data. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash archive. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash archive. Indeed.com slash archive. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. So on this episode, we are tackling the fear that new things change our brains. And here's how we're going to do it. First, let's establish the foundation. Where did the idea of changing the brain actually come from? Then we'll dig in more on dopamine as a way of appreciating how one public narrative about brain changes could be so different from actual science on brain changes. And then finally, we'll turn to the big idea itself. Why is changing the brain not such a bad thing after all? So time to rewind back, back, back to the first time people started to take the brain seriously. I think we have to go back to the ancient Greeks. This is Peter Kohler. He's a retired neurologist in the Netherlands who has served as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the History of the Neurosciences since 1997. He also teaches courses on the history of neuroscience, and here, according to him, is why the history of neuroscience really starts with the Greeks. Up to that period... We were thinking in terms of gods and demons who were causing all kinds of diseases, but also were responsible for health. To the degree that anyone prior to this explored the importance of our bodily organs, they believed that the heart was the most important one. But then the Greeks started to explore the possibility of natural causes, that some of our experiences and sicknesses could be caused by physical reasons rather than external forces like gods and demons. But still, there was a lot of debate about exactly how this worked and exactly what part Parts of our bodies did what? Some ancient Greek thinkers believed that the brain controlled consciousness, but others believed the heart did. Then the Western world became Christianized and the line of inquiry changed. The concept of the soul became much more important. Rather than trying to understand how the brain worked, for example, people spent centuries exploring where the soul resides in our bodies. Some believed that our nerves were hollow tubes that enabled the soul to move around. If the brain was important, they figured it was just because that's where the soul lived. It wasn't actually until the 18th century that we came to understand that electricity was moving through our bodies. And that's when a more scientifically rigorous exploration of the brain actually began to take place. So we, we've really only, historically speaking, just begun to understand the brain. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, you, you might say that. Yeah. Only uh, about 150 years. 
So I told Peter about all this business with dopamine, and I showed him that 1904 New York Times article with the automobile brain, and I asked him, where might this line of thinking come from? At what point did we go from recognizing that the brain controls our consciousness and thoughts to worrying that the things that we interact with will somehow alter our brain in damaging ways? Peter wasn't aware of anyone who had studied this particular question, but he was willing to take a guess. He wondered if it may have begun with this recognition. You may see that the human brain, like whole nature, is influenced by two things, by the genes and by the environments, as, as the whole body is, is influenced by that. Once science established that we change, we then wanted to know, well, what determines how we change? A fellow named Charles Darwin, of course, had a little theory about that. We have come to call it survival of the fittest, but really it's the survival of those whose qualities are most adaptive to their environment. And this causes entire species to change, but that happens over a long, long period of time. And while Darwin's idea did win out, of course, it was not actually the only theory of evolution that was kicking around in the mid-1800s. After Darwin wrote down his theories, you even had uh, the, the, the French people, for example, they they um, adhered to Lamarck for several decades. They didn't believe in the Darwinian ideas. And maybe you're thinking, uh, who's he talking about? A few decades before Darwin in France, you had another evolutionist, and that was Lamarck. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. He was a few decades older than Darwin and had been advancing a concept that came to be known as Lamarckism, a.k.a. the theory of inheritance of acquired characteristics. One of the basic ideas was that if you have a characteristic that you acquire it during your life, that your children may immediately inherit these characteristics. Lamarckism picked up steam as a counter-narrative to Darwinism, and it's easy to see why. Darwinism gives us no agency. It says that evolution happens too slow to be witnessed in any one lifetime, and that the actions of one individual do not alter the genetics of the next generation. That is a real bummer in a way. But Lamarckism does give us agency. It says that, yes, your actions do matter and your achievements are passed down to your children. If this isn't the root of our modern fears of our changing brains, then Peter says it at least speaks to the longstanding tension in our understanding of ourselves and how the things that we do or change will impact us and the next generation. Now, don't worry, your brain is not actually subject to Lamarckism. If changes in the brain will be transferred to the next generation by epigenetic inheritance, I think we are far from being able to prove that. And yet, that is cold comfort when we look at technology today and worry about how that impacts our children's brains. Today, nobody worries that their own technology decisions will be genetically passed down to their children, but they do worry about how the technology we created will impact the next generation at a deep biological level. Which brings us back to dopamine. And you have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine. And look, let me be clear about what's coming in the next few minutes. I will not attempt to give you a full dissertation on dopamine. It is just too complicated and also kind of beside the point. Instead, what I want to do is use dopamine as a kind of case study for how real science can transform into scary science. What is the difference between the common narrative of something that happens in our brain and, you know, what is actually happening in our brain? And to do this, let's pick up with dopamine expert Dr. Reed Montague, who was responding to that Simon Sinek clip. So look, he is summarizing something that 
we all worry about, but we're not sure the way in which it's true, in which is these kids are obsessed with all this stuff and whatnot. On the other hand, we all are. So that's a legitimate worry. I think it's probably not so useful to be so categorical about it. And that's because the brain, and dopamine in particular, is just not as simple as it's made out to be. For example, when technology critics talk about dopamine, they talk about it as a thing directly tied to pleasure and addiction and only tied to pleasure and addiction. You do something pleasurable, you get dopamine. Get enough dopamine, you're addicted. Period. End of story. But is that actually true? Like all things in biology, dopamine doesn't do one thing. It doesn't have this monolithic dopamine equals pleasure uh, marquee. So the fact is dopamine doesn't equal pleasure. Squirts of dopamine, transient increases and decreases in dopamine are clearly in certain kinds of brain regions, learning signals. They're not pleasure signals. There's also pleasure that attends that kind of thing in the general vicinity of events that would cause increases and decreases in dopamine. But those also involve other neurotransmitter systems. And dopamine itself doesn't just uh, transmit learning signals of one sort or another. It's also involved in invigorating action, mood, motivating behavior. Uh, one of the most interesting ideas about dopamine is that it has some forecasting qualities where the system forecasts the value of time in the, in the kind of near-term future. So, okay, that's a lot more complicated and hard to squeeze into a soundbite on Real Time with Bill Maher, but it made me wonder, how did we get from a complicated and real dopamine to scary storytime dopamine? Well, here's one theory. A lot of studies have been done on rodents, where a scientist actively controls the animal's dopamine neurons, and the results make for compelling and easily simplifiable anecdotes. If I take an electrode and I stick it in your dopamine neurons in your brainstem, or a rodent's brainstem, and I start stimulating it by creating little electrical impulses and the connections from those neurons out to your brain. So these are tens of thousands of neurons that connect to literally millions and millions of output cells throughout your, your whole brain, really. Well, you'll organize your behavior to chase that. So if every time you turn toward the, the, the blue rubber stop, you're the rodent, and you turn toward the blue rubber stopper, I give you a little zap, you'll learn very quickly how to keep that zap coming. So that's a pretty simple situation, right? It very quickly understands there's one thing that has to happen and it gets the reward. Can this actually be applied to something as complicated as a human being engaging with technology? Because when I go onto social media, a lot of different things are happening and some of them are you know, you know a, a, a technological version of things that I would have otherwise already been doing in any other period of time. I would be engaging with my network and so on and so forth. Is there, um, is there any way to tease this apart? Is there any logic sure. to this? Yeah. I mean, in a way, with the rat and the, the electrode in their neurons and me stimulating it, I'm deciding for the rat's brain what to deem super important and what to deem unimportant. Okay. A, a real rat, already knows how to do that, with a lot of biological variation. Experiments like this can tell you interesting things about dopamine, but we cannot conflate what dopamine does in a normally functioning brain with what dopamine does when a scientist has literally attached a wire to a creature's brain. And this reminds me of something that I saw a lot in the earlier part of my career when I worked as a health reporter. You would see these stories online that say things like, I don't know, eating celery can reduce your risk of colon cancer. And so you're like, whoa, time to stock up on celery. But what's really happening here? 
Well, if you actually look at the study itself and not just some health website's clicky story about the study, what you would see is that researchers had, let's say, isolated some chemical that happens to show up in celery and they put it in a Petri dish or whatever with some colon cancer cells and then some of the colon cancer cells died. And that's interesting in a way. It is a result worthy of more exploration. But it does not mean that if you eat celery, you will cure colon cancer. The science never said that. Things happening in isolation do not necessarily replicate themselves inside the complicated, well-honed ecosystem of a body. And the brain is a very complicated system. Those systems are well-crafted. They kept us alive for a long time. They kept animals alive for a long time. So they're sophisticated. They're doing projections through time. They're doing projections across commodities. They're comparing things. They're interacting with other systems like, for example, serotonin. So in short, is dopamine associated with pleasure? Yes, in a way. Is it associated with addiction? Yes, in a way. Do people change their behaviors as a result of dopamine? Yes, in a way. But can you say, therefore, that any pleasurable thing results in dopamine and that dopamine will cause an addiction to the pleasurable thing and this equates to heroin usage? No, that is incorrect. And it is incorrect even in cases where dopamine really is involved in shaping your behavior. If you ask yourself how many people behaviorally modify their lives in order to increase dopamine delivery to their cerebral cortex, the answer is 90% of people in the world use a caffeinated beverage every day of the week. Okay. Are we addicted to caffeine? Well, yeah. Is that a bad thing? I, I Probably not. We're probably a sigma more productive because of it. People just sort of enjoy it. There's a lot of social activity that's, that, that, that organizes around that. And so that's that. And as you listen to this while finishing your fourth cup of coffee in the morning, you might think, oh, come on, that's a bad comparison with technology because we know that caffeine is safe. To which I say, rewind to the episode of this podcast that I did called Coffee, the original controversial drug, where I will take you through hundreds of years of fear mongering and government bans on coffee. John Harvey Kellogg, the guy who invented cornflakes, ran advertisements that claimed, quote, you can recover from any ordinary disease by discontinuing coffee, end quote. So, you know, let's keep in mind what we do and do not know. Anyway, as I listened to Reed talk about all this, I started to reflect upon a historical pattern that I have seen while making this show. Something new is invented or discovered or popularized, and people really like it, and they spend a whole bunch of time with it. And that, in turn, prompts not just concerns from a moral and cultural standpoint, but also concerns from a biological standpoint. The New York Times reported on that automobile brain, for example, but also there were worries about how radio would become addictive and novels would lead to people's physical exhaustion and spinning wheels of bicycles would overwhelm people's minds and on and on and on. Across time... People's collective enjoyment of a new thing seems to spawn a concern that the collective enjoyment is a symptom of a biological problem, that this new thing is only enjoyable relative to the old things because it must be overpowering our brains and bodies in some unhealthy way. And now that I have an actual brain scientist on the phone who has studied exactly how the human brain reacts to new things, I mean, I just have to ask, should we be concerned about things we like? Oh, God, no. Come on. Do you understand what? Do you, do you understand the reason I'm yes. asking that? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, life is hard on people. Bad stuff happens to people. It's okay to like a cup of coffee in the morning and the, and the excitement of getting a news feed on your supercomputer that sits in your pocket. We're gonna get grim about that. 
I do understand new things bring a whole panoply of bad uses or possible sort of pathologies and all, but sure. um, do you think people, when the Gutenberg press was made and people in power realized what their power was and that parts of it were going away, mm-hmm. you think they groused about, oh, well, then just everybody's going to be educated then. I mean, they, they're going to be addicted to the books that they read. People talked about that. People talked about being addicted to the books they read. I think a lot of it is premised on a belief that we are fragile, that our brains are built for something that we do not have anymore, and that we have created these things that we are not physically able to manage, and so that we get overrun by them. Right. Are we fragile? We are the opposite of fragile. We're the opposite of fragile. Of course, let me be clear. Reed and I are not saying that nothing new is harmful or that new and for that matter, old things cannot be misused. But if we are to purely look at the question of whether or not the average brain is capable of enjoying something new and maybe even enjoying a lot of it, whether that's coffee or novels or screens or social media, Reed Montague says the science is clear. We do not break easily. And that is because we have a special superpower. It is possible to change your brain. So now let's understand how. Coming up after the break. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in your relationships, you may want to talk with someone who's completely unbiased about your life, someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. That's what therapy can be, and it's what BetterHelp can provide. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so that you don't have to see anyone on camera if you you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And when you unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback, you just might be surprised at what you gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy, and Build for Tomorrow listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com build. Again, that is betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, dot com slash build. All right, we're back. So before we get into the idea of changing your brain, let's level set for a moment. Back in 2008, a neuroscientist at UCLA named Gary Small published the results of a first-of-its-kind experiment. He put 24 people inside of MRI machines and then watched the neural activity inside of these people's brains as they read a book and used a search engine. Half of the group were regular users of the internet, and the other half were not. So what happened? Well, when each group read a book, their brains mostly reacted exactly the same. But when they used a search engine, their brains were wildly different. Here is from a UCLA report on that study. The web-savvy group also registered activity in the frontal, temporal, and cingulate areas of the brain, which control decision-making and complex reasoning. The brains of the people who use the internet and the brains of people who did not use the internet were functioning differently. In that UCLA release, Gary Small described the results of his study as, quote, encouraging. He said that computers might have potential benefits for middle age and older adults, which could combat the atrophy that takes place in brains as we age. Then Gary wrote a book called iBrain about all the ways technology could be changing our brains. And that mostly kicked off a wave of coverage about how technology is changing our brains for the worse. The Guardian's headline was, How the Internet is Altering Your Mind. 
I tell you all this as a way of showing the big picture version of what we saw with dopamine. An observation about change becomes translated into a story about harm. Why? Because the idea of changing our brains or of our brains being impacted in some way by things we interact with just sounds really scary until you talk to someone who understands the brain. Years ago, for a story in Fast Company, I actually called Gary Small, the guy who did that study at UCLA, and told him about that 1904 automobile brain clip from the New York Times. If MRI machines had been around back then, I asked him, would they have likely seen the same result in car drivers' brain scans that he saw in internet users' brain scans? His exact words in response, quote, you'd see the same pattern, probably, yeah, end quote. While reporting this episode, I emailed a professor of neurobiology and behavior at the University of California, Irvine, named Larry Cahill. He unfortunately was ill at the time I reached out, so he couldn't talk, but he sent me a nice note that I want to read to you. He wrote, quote, I am well known for my work on the amygdala, a brain region analogous to dopamine in that it became the default for anything having to do with emotion. It's your amygdala, as dopamine became the default for anything to do with addiction, end quote. Then he sent me links to some studies about brain changes and concluded this way, quote, I have indeed changed your brain with this email as you changed mine with yours. I don't think we have to worry, end quote. All of which is to say... When people who study the brain look at the brain, they see changes in the brain and they say, yep, there are the changes in the brain because that's the thing brains do. They change. And Reed said this is a very important, very misunderstood thing about ourselves. The, the phrase our brain changes is a very scary thing, right? Like, <laughs> you, you know, you sit somebody down at a computer and their brain changes. <laughs> the answer is, the, as I understand it, and I'm no brain scientist, but the answer is, well, yes, because our brain changes all the time, right? To, to say that because our brain changes. Yeah. To call it a brain means that it changes. It's a completely nonsensical assertion to say, oh, I have a brain here and I move around a lot. My brain never changes. What, what, what does that even mean? You know, when they first started making airplanes, big ones, they were very worried about stability. Stability. So they'd make these airfoils, you know, and, you know, they'd make it very stable. And pretty quickly, they figured out you can't turn the damn thing. It's not maneuverable. Mm. And there's a rub there between stability and maneuverability. Which one do you want? You want to build a plane that's great from now and forever? Well, nobody with any brains knows that you can anticipate the future that well. And so now what happens is planes sort of have a human in there, and they're doing 100,000 corrections every second that no brain could even deal with. So it deals with this meta level of things. And so, I mean, your brain is a change machine. That's all it's ever been. It was, that's it, it's about the uncertainty of the future. It's built to react to that. So what does that look like? What's the biological brain version of an airplane that's built for maneuverability and not just stability? Your brain reorganizes itself at every level we can look at. One of the things your brain is really, really good at is constantly reconfiguring itself. I don't just mean rewiring itself. I mean, even people that look inside cells at uh, subcellular parts, one thing's called the endoplasmic reticulum, it reorganizes according to whether you've been learning stuff or not. So literally any scale that anyone I can think of looks at, it reorganizes under the pressures of the environment. And what is the result of this? It means that we are able to thrive in quote-unquote unnatural environments, that we are not limited by what our brains once knew, that there is no known limit to what we can achieve. 
we weren't evolved to live two million people in a bunch of apartments in New York City. I used to live in New York City, and I, I remember thinking, it's amazing watching people move past each other in Grand Central Station, just kind of flowing past each other. And like solving that as an optimization problem is literally impossible. Nobody thinks anything of it. And yet their algorithms weren't designed to do that. You know, your, your hand is a grasping structure. It wasn't designed to write a book with a pencil, but it does that. And so I, I, this finding new uses of things and innovation and whatnot, it is what we are. When pessimists talk about how we weren't built to do this or that, or how our brain changing is a sign of something unnatural, I take great comfort in what Reed Montague and other brain scientists know. They know that the phrase, we weren't built to do this, is literal nonsense. What were we built to do? All the evidence points to one thing. We were built to build. And build, we do. I mean, let's not forget, smartphones are not an invasive species from the moons of Saturn using advanced technology we've never seen before. They were built by human brains to be used by human brains. And as the human brain learns how to use and optimize these things, the brain will change, as it should as it must, as it has to, to enable us not just to live in the world that we live in, but to have built that world ourselves and to build whatever comes next. In this way, the story of dopamine is a little like the story of ourselves. Some of us tell a simplified story of our own limitations based on partial truths and maybe even a willful misunderstanding. We say that we are meant to do one thing and that we have strayed from that one thing. And others of us say, no, wait a minute, we are not so easily simplified and we have only just begun to understand our full potential. And you cannot judge us based on a belief that the world around us changes, but that we somehow stay fixed as small, simple creatures driven by simple pleasures. No, we change. So the next time you hear someone talk about dopamine or scary changes in their brain, you can say, look, I have the power right now to tell you something that will change your brain. I am going to change your brain right now and you're going to like it and benefit from it because that is our superpower. So let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let us change your brain. And that's our episode. But I do have one more fun fact about dopamine, and it is also a fun fact about why you like coffee. The two are connected. I'll play it in a minute. But first, do you want to feel more optimistic about the future? Sign up for my newsletter. It's called Build for Tomorrow, just like the show, and it will deliver a regular dose of optimism and ways to become more forward thinking and adaptable. Find it by going to jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can do so at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. Again, that's uh, for both J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R. Or you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I am at HeyPfeiffer. This episode was written and reported by me, Jason Pfeiffer. The Change Your Brain jingle, along with a few other readings, was Gia Mora. You can find her at GiaMora.com. Sound editing by Alec Bayliss. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at BabyPantsMusic.com. Thanks to Adam Sokolich for production help. And of course, huge, huge thanks to Reed Montague for basically taking my stupid call when I was like, I don't know anything about dopamine. Will you tell me about dopamine? And for some reason, he said yes, and I am grateful. This show is supported in part by the Charles Koch Institute. The Charles Koch Institute believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that's you, then get in touch with them. Proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit cki.org. That's cki.org. All right. 
Now, one more little bit about dopamine. We talked earlier about coffee and caffeine and how dopamine plays a role in why you like drinking it. But that is just the start. When you take caffeine, you can prolong any given dopamine release because it blocks dopamine reuptake. That's what it does. Caffeine is something called methylated xanthine. It binds to the transporter, which is a vacuum, which vacuums up dopamine from the extracellular space into which it's released. I, I slow that down with this chemical. And so for any given pulse of dopamine, it prolongs it. So the thing that you were experiencing or even thinking about or simulating in your mind, it gets this extra sort of glow to it. So enjoy that extra cup and that extra dopamine. That's all for this time. Thanks for listening and for allowing me to change your brain today. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow.